how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Revelation Part 2, The Ascended Lord. The book of Revelation is not only different in content from all other books in the Bible, it's different in origin. It was the only book that no one decided to write. The Gospels and the Epistles and the book of Acts, somebody said, I want to write a letter or I want to write a Gospel and sat down and thought it through and then put it on paper. Now, I know we say that John wrote it. What do we mean by that? Well, he actually wrote it down, but it didn't come from him at all. That explains something that has puzzled the Bible scholars a lot. He calls himself John with no other introduction at all, so he must have been a very well-known and very famous John. And the only well-known John in that area was the Apostle John, the only one of the twelve disciples not to be assassinated, the only one to live to an old age. And we know that he moved to Ephesus and that he took with him Mary, the mother of Jesus, and looked after her as if she were his own mother in Ephesus. And about a year ago, some of us stood at the grave of the Apostle John in Ephesus. Well now, we say he wrote it, but he didn't really. He never intended to write this book, had no idea of writing it. He was told simply to write down what he saw and heard. He was like a shorthand typist. He was a secretary, or they used to call him in those days amanuensis. Now the problem is that the style of Revelation is so different from his Gospel and his three letters that many scholars have said it can't be the same John. But I want you to imagine that you're in a cinema watching a film like Gone with the Wind and you're told to write down everything you see and hear in the cinema. Can you imagine what your writing would be like? I know what your notes, those of you are taking notes. Is every sentence complete? Is the grammar good? Is the spelling all right? No. And poor John was having to write down. In fact, he was so overwhelmed with the visions he was seeing and the words he was hearing that many times he forgot to write it down. And eleven times in the book, an angel says, you're not writing this down. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And poor John grabs his pen again and has to keep going. So it's very scrappy. The grammar is bad. Some sentences aren't even complete. And they say, how could the Apostle John, who was a pretty good writer in his old age, how could he have penned such a thing? Well, the answer was he was taking notes, writing down everything he saw and as quickly as possible. Well, then why didn't he take the notes and polish them and produce a nicely written book? Well, the answer is very simple. The last thing he wrote down was, anyone who tampers with this book will be cursed. <laughs> anyone who takes away what you've written <laughs> or adds anything to it, so he didn't dare touch what he'd written, and that's why we have, and it is in the Greek, a very scrappy sort of book, and not at all like the Apostle John's writings. But it was his hand that actually wrote down. Nevertheless, it was not from his mind. It was largely dictated to him. Now, it's amazing how many people were involved in the production of this book. 
angels were involved. Angels were telling uh, John what to write. The Holy Spirit was involved. Jesus was involved. It's called the revelation of Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So we've got God giving the revelation to Jesus, giving it to his spirit, giving it to angels, giving it to John, giving it to the seven churches. That's the kind of chain of revelation that is involved in this book. It does make it quite unique. We've got a revelation direct from God and direct from Jesus and direct from the Spirit through the angels to John to the seven churches. That's quite a, a long chain. So who is really the author? Well, I suppose God is and Jesus is and the Spirit is. John was simply writing down what he saw and heard and it came in the form both verbal and visual. He heard things and he saw things and was told to write them all down and that's how we've got it. Now, it begins with an extraordinary revelation of Jesus himself. Bear in mind that John had been the closest to Jesus during his life. When they lay at table, they didn't sit on chairs, they lay in their table like this and uh, ate with the right hand, they were leaning against somebody else. Incidentally, their dirty feet were under the nose of the next man. That's why they had to wash their feet rather than their hands before they ate. But here's John always on Jesus' right hand, always leaning on Jesus' breast, whispering things to him. John was the beloved apostle. Uh, I don't like to use the word favourite, but he was closest to Jesus, loved very deeply. And now, 60 years later, he meets Jesus again, but this time he's terrified and falls on the ground in a faint because he has never seen Jesus like this before. For one thing, his hair is now pure white and that's a change, Jesus. But more than that, it, it is the blazing glory of the figure he sees. He hears him first, a voice behind him speaks and turning to see who's talking, he has this incredible vision of Jesus. If ever you go to Coventry Cathedral, you'll see a very unusual tapestry at uh, the far end. I'm not sure that I like it. It's enormous. That little man at the feet of Jesus is life-size and if you've been, you know how big it is. But it was an attempt to portray this glorified, ascended Jesus as he appeared to John. And there are other symbols from the book of Revelation, the creatures from Revelation uh, 4 around the ascended Christ, Christ in glory. You see, Paul saw Jesus after he ascended and got his glory back and it blinded him. Whereas in the resurrection appearances, nobody was blinded. When Jesus got his glory back and was blazing with glory, then it, it's quite an awesome sight. And John, who'd known him best of all, couldn't cope with it and fell on the floor in a dead faint. Well, now this is a different Jesus to the Jesus of the Gospels. Same person, but now he's the ascended, glorified Lord and that makes him very different. Furthermore, he appears in the robes of a Roman judge and something always uh, turns your heart upside down when you see a judge in his robes in our country with a wig and full regalia, uh, a rather awesome figure. 
You see, when Jesus comes back, he comes as judge. And when the world sees Jesus, they will see a very different Jesus to the one they've seen in stained glass windows and Sunday school pictures. The gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that's taught in Sunday schools is not the Jesus of Revelation. We'll say more about this later. But this is a revelation of Jesus. We see Jesus in a totally new light, a fearsome light. In fact, in chapter 6, it says that the people of the earth, the kings, right down to the slaves, will pray that the mountains will fall on them and swallow them up rather than look on the face of this Jesus and his blazing eyes, blazing with anger at what we've done to his Father's world. So we need the book of Revelation to fill out our picture of Jesus and there are many, many brand new titles of Jesus in this book. Some titles even which are given to God in this book are later given to Jesus like Alpha and Omega. And here we have Jesus presenting himself in a new light. As you probably know, he has 250 different names and titles, more than anybody in history, and it's a good devotional exercise to write them down. You'll get stuck about 35, but there are 250 titles of Jesus. Many of them come out of this book. He shows himself in a new revelation of himself, and each title shows us something more about him. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I am holy and true. I am the Amen. I am the faithful and true witness. I am the ruler of God's creation. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the root of David. I am faithful and true. I am the root and offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. I love that one. If ever you're up early enough to see the last star before they all disappear, it's low down near the horizon and it's very bright and it's the last one still to be shining. And I just love to say to myself, when all the film stars have gone and when all the pop stars have gone, there'll be one star still shining. That's the meaning of that lovely title, the bright morning star. But above all, there is one title in this book, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I add President of Presidents and Prime Minister of Prime Ministers, because that's what it means. He's the ruler of all rulers. He's Tony Blair's ruler. He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the book begins with this awesome picture of Jesus but it also begins with a picture of Jesus in very close contact with the churches on earth, walking among them, walking around them, having a good look at them, holding the lampstands in his hand. And here we have the first few symbols in the book, stars, seven stars, seven lampstands, but there's no problem. They're all explained. The lampstands are the churches and the stars are the angels of those churches. Just as every child has an angel reporting back to father what lies are told to children, Jesus said it'd be better for you not to have a millstone round your neck and be thrown into the sea than tell a lie to a little one because their angels behold the face of my father in heaven. But each church has an angel looking after it too. And uh, that comes out clearly here. We need to remember that. One day you'll meet the angel of your church. 
And uh, whenever we worship, we're surrounded by angels. When anybody asks me, you know, how many were at church Sunday morning, I want to say thousands. Thousands upon thousands. We just joined in with the heavenly worship. So we have this picture of Jesus, the heavenly ascended Jesus in glory, yet visiting his churches, looking at them, looking at the cities in which those churches are. He reveals a knowledge of both the church and the cities, which is highly unusual. Well, now we've come to the section of seven letters to seven churches. I'm amazed that we pay so much attention to the letters of Paul and so much attention to the letters of John and so little attention to the letters of Jesus. Does that strike you? These are the only letters we have of Jesus himself. And we should pay, I think, even more attention to them because they are from him to these seven churches. But we've got to ask, why did Jesus write these letters to those churches? What's so special about them? Well, we'll have to do a little geography first. Let's look at um, a photograph of Turkey taken from a satellite out in space. And here is Turkey, here's Greece. And we notice that Turkey is most of it quite brown and uh, somewhat barren. But right along the north coast, next to the Black Sea, is green. And then there's an exception to that twofold color. Down in the bottom left-hand corner, the southwest corner, there is a green circle. And it's formed by a number of rivers running direct from these hills out to the Aegean Sea and bringing fertility to the valleys. So can you see that, those of you near enough? A green circle down in the bottom corner. All the seven churches are within that circle. It's a very important circle. It's a meeting place between the Western world centered in Rome and the Eastern world of China, Africa, India. It's a melting pot of culture, of Roman culture, of Greek culture, of pagan culture. It's a melting pot of politics. It's a melting pot of religion. It is an extraordinary little area. And there is one further thing that shows how important it is to Jesus. Here is the circle of the churches. And uh, the letters are in order. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Here's the main road from the west to the east of our world. But it splits at Pergamum. One goes down the coast through Ephesus and one goes inland through Thyatira and so on. They meet up again at Laodicea and carry on to the east. This little circle, this fertile circle, is where everything met. Furthermore, and this is the most important revelation in the book, Satan, being a creature rather than a creator, can only be in one place at once. He goes to and fro in the earth, but he also has a headquarters, a residence somewhere in the world. I don't know where it is today. I could guess, but I don't know. But he has a residence from which he makes journeys around the world. He can also have access to heaven too, and he goes up there as well. But he has a residence on earth, which is the center of his kingdom, the capital. And in this time, at the end of the first century, his residence was in Pergamum. 
That's where Satan lived on the earth and resided. And when Jesus wrote to the church at Pergamum, he says, I know where you live, where Satan resides. The word resides means a permanent residence, where he stays, where he dwells. Now, Satan clearly saw this area, this circle of cities at the meeting point of west and east, he saw this circle as crucial to his kingdom. And uh, when some of us went round this area, we saw the remains of the culture, incredible culture, and the religion, the temples. This is a key area. And there were little churches in each of these seven places, a kind of circuit of churches based on Ephesus, and indeed from Ephesus most of the others had been planted where John was. And Ephesus, we know more about that church than any other in the whole New Testament. And look at the ministries it had. It started off with Apollos, then a um, couple, Priscilla and Aquila, then it had Paul, then Timothy, and then John. Few areas had had as many apostles or ministries as this little area. Here was the battleground. It is the end of the first century. The churches are now into their second and third generation and they are now being planted right in the heart of Satan's kingdom and worldly culture and pagan religion. It is the crucial test. If the churches survive here, they will survive anywhere. If second and third generation Christians can overcome with the pressures here, then the church will go on right to the end. So Jesus is watching this little circle of churches very closely. So much hangs on it. Have I conveyed the, to you the very focus? And Satan has his residence here. The interesting thing is that the condition of the churches is almost in direct ratio to the distance from Satan's residence. Two nearest to Satan are corrupted from the inside with idolatry and immorality. The next two further out are persecuted but are coming out on top and Jesus has no criticism for them. The two furthest away, namely Ephesus and Laodicea, are not troubled by Satan at all. They're just losing their first love or growing cold. Isn't that interesting? Satan is right inside the churches near at hand and he's got idolatry and immorality right inside those churches. A bit further away, he is persecuting them through Jews and they're having a tough time but Jesus has no criticism for the two persecuted churches. But the two furthest away from Satan, they're just growing cold. They're lukewarm, they're neither hot nor cold or they're losing their first love. It's an amazing picture that emerges from these seven letters. But I think you can see how crucial this area is to the future of the church in the second and third generation because second and third generation Christians are not always as enthusiastic or as dedicated as the first generation converts. We all know this with our children. They've got to come to the same enthusiasm and zeal for the Lord as their parents have. So second, third generation Christians 
churches, tiny little groups of people meeting in houses and halls under this dreadful domination of Greco-Roman culture, pagan religion, and above all, Satan. If you go to Pergamum, there's a huge, steep mountain towering over Pergamum itself, and on the top of the mountain are libraries and temples, and one of them in particular was the Temple of Zeus, and it's like a huge armchair, massive U-shaped temple, and in the courtyard was an altar which was constantly burning, black smoke. You could see from the city of Pergamum right above you this horrible temple with the black smoke constantly rising from it, which uh, Jesus calls Satan's throne. And there's a picture of it, but it's not in Pergamum now. I, that picture is from East Berlin, uh, a museum called the Pergamon. And in fact, this was taken, the altar of Zeus, taken from Pergamum and re-erected in Berlin, and you can see it there. It is massive. That little black dot there is a full-size human being. And uh, this massive armchair like that, can you see it? That's Satan's throne. Turkey wants it back, and there are Christians in Berlin praying that it may go back. <laughs> but um, it is not Satan's throne now, it's an empty chair. But that was in Pergamum here, and uh, Satan resided right there. And you can, he loves heights, does Satan. He loves to be on top of a mountain surveying the kingdoms of the world. He was when he tempted Jesus in that way. So you can see that this is why Jesus wrote these letters to this particular place. I'm not going to say an awful lot about the letters because I've said an awful lot on a double video. Here's the commercial coming. But uh, last year we went out with the uh, film crew that we've got here today and we went out and we went round the seven churches and uh, the, this double video has all the letters translated and explained and expounded in full detail. So I'm not going to go through an awful lot of detail in this series, but let's just look at each letter. There are seven letters to seven churches and almost everything in the book of Revelation is in sevens, right the way through. Seven trumpets, seven seals, seven bowls of wrath. Seven is God's perfect number. It's the round, complete number. What falls short of God is six. And six, six, six is a trinity of falling short of, of God. And we'll come across that figure later. But seven is God's complete and perfect number. And so Jesus speaks to these seven churches, he writes seven letters, and each letter has seven parts. And uh, the seven parts of each letter are so similar, and we'll just run through them. The first part, he puts the address at the top of the letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Sardis or wherever. Then he never uses his own name. He doesn't say this letter's from Jesus. He gives himself a title, a title that is usually brand new, something that the churches need to know about him. Either they've forgotten some aspect of his personality or they need to be told about it. So when he is pretty scathing about a church, he says, I am the true and faithful witness. I'm telling you the truth. So. 
The attribute of Jesus is the second item in each letter. These are the words of him who. And then he describes himself. And these descriptions are taken from the initial vision in chapter 1. So having shown himself in glory to John, he now picks things out of that vision and applies them to each church individually. The third item in each letter is he approves something in the church. And here's a neat little uh, reminder to us. If you're going to criticise someone, say something nice first. If you're going to say something bad, say something good first. In fact, all the epistles of the New Testament follow this pattern. Paul writing to the church at Corinth, which was in a mess, says, I thank God that you come behind in no spiritual gift. There was only one church that Paul couldn't say anything good about. Do you know which one that was? Galatians. But normally when he's writing a letter, he commends them, he approves first. And Jesus does the same. And Jesus always begins this section by saying, I know. I know all about you. I know all the good things you are, all the good things you've done. I know. You need never worry that something you do that's good is not noticed. Jesus sees it if nobody else does. If you never get thanked by the church, don't worry, because Jesus saw it. He says, I know your deeds, and there's approval. Then he gets on to accusation, but, but, yet I hold this against you, and those criticisms are devastating. Jesus sees all the bad things in your church, the secret, the hidden things, as well as the good things that usually are out in the public eye, but he sees the bad things. Then he moves to advice and he tells them what he, they should do to put the situation right. But he says, if you don't, I will come and put it right. And to two of the churches he warns them that Jesus is in the business of closing churches down, or in the language of Revelation, removing their lampstand. Now, we're so keen to plant new churches, to grow new churches, to open them, but Jesus wants some closed. And he says, either you put this right or I'll have to close you down. And there are plenty of empty church buildings around the world that have been closed down. Jesus not only plants churches, he closes them when they're an insult to him and the gospel. But he always makes an appeal, and the appeal is, he who has an ear, let him hear. Or if I may translate that, let everyone who hears heed what I write. There's a difference between hearing and heeding, isn't there? Difference between just hearing the words and taking it in. There was a secretary in London appeared in the office with new earrings, and one said in and the other said out. I've often thought of selling them on these evangelical trinket stands <laughs> to congregations. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And you notice that each letter had to be read in all the churches, so they all heard them all. And it must have been uh, quite awesome when you heard the letter to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon, and then yours was next. And you thought, what's he going to say about us? And you waited with bated breath. But the appeal is really saying, RSVP. I want a, re a response. I want to reply to this letter. I want to see that you got it. 
by how you react to it. And then an assurance, a promise, closes the letter, to him who overcomes, I will. Now notice that that assurance at the end is not given to the church, it's given to an individual within the church. Whatever the state of your church, however bad it is, you are responsible for you. You can't take responsibility for the whole church. Jesus saying, whatever the state of your church, what I will ask you in the last days, did you overcome? It also tells us that the first place we have to overcome is inside the church, not outside. That if we can't overcome the problems inside the church, we're never going to be overcomers when the world gets at us. That's the acid test of our endurance and of our overcoming. Interesting, not one of the letters says, I advise you to go down the road to Izmir because of Smyrna as it was then, I advise you to get your chariot out and go down the road to Smyrna, it's a much better church. Didn't say that, did he? He said, you overcome right there. You stay there and as far as you're concerned, one of the most strong appeals he makes to an individual within the church is in the last letter to Laodicea where he tells the whole church that he wants to spew them out of his mouth, you make me sick. But he says, I'm standing and knocking at the door. It's not the door of the heart, it's the door of the church. And he says, if just one member wants me back in, I'll come in. What a promise. One member can get Jesus back into a church. That doesn't, of course, give the whole church fellowship with Jesus, but he says, I will sup with that member and they will sup with me. We'll have fellowship together. That's the most misapplied, misunderstood verse in the whole Bible. Behold, I stand at the door knock. It has nothing to do with conversion. It has nothing to do with counselling and inquirer. It has everything to do with a church that has lost Jesus and any member in that church can get him back in. So you see, each letter has the same pattern. But it's most helpful to read the letters side by side. We read them one after another in the Bible, but when you put them side by side, you see some very different things appearing in the letter. I've, I've coloured what is the same, and you notice straight away that one, two, three, four, five are approved for being good churches, but two, there's nothing good in them. And funnily enough, they are the most successful churches of all seven. They're the most packed, they have the biggest offerings, the biggest congregations, the biggest collections, and yet Jesus has nothing good. You see, when Jesus looks at a church, he doesn't look at it the way we do. And then you notice accusation, one, two, three, four, five, two of them, nothing wrong. Well, now they can't have been perfect, but they were suffering for Jesus, and Jesus doesn't criticise a suffering church. He encourages them. Well, now that's just a very quick uh, survey. Uh, I wonder if I should show you one or two photographs very quickly. There's the main street in Ephesus, which was the heart of it all. I'm going to show you very quickly the pictures that we have of the different places. That's Laodicea, and on the other side, oh, we've got all seven churches on the other side there. But uh, let's just show you quickly. We've got Philadelphia, that's the remains of a Christian church in Philadelphia. And there we've got Sardis, 
great big temple of Diana here and a little brick church at the side of it where the Christians later worshipped. We've got Smyrna, the marketplace, and you can look at all these afterwards. There's the famous theatre in Ephesus where Paul nearly had a, a riot, well, did cause a riot. There's Thyatira, and finally Pergamum, and it was on top here that we had this temple of Zeus, the residence of Satan. Well, that's just given you a little flavour. I want now to give you a, an outline of the whole book of Revelation so that we've got an overall picture of it. It's concerned with the heavenly Christ and the earthly churches and therefore Revelation constantly moves from earth to heaven and heaven back to earth. It's just constantly changing scene. That throws us a little because we're not used to history of heaven as well as earth because what goes on up in heaven often changes things down here. Now I've divided the book of Revelation into four groups, four sections, two of them in red, two of them in green because the red ones are bad news and the green ones are good news. Chapters, chapter 1 gives us the picture of the heavenly Christ and his concern for the earthly churches. Chapters 2 to 3 I've called Things Are Not All Right on Earth and Jesus has to correct these things. They live in a corrupted world in that part of uh, Asia and a compromised church, compromised in its beliefs and compromised in its behaviour. Idolatry and immorality have crept in, other things are happening. Those are the two major problems even within the church. The next section, four to five, tells us things are all right in heaven. Whatever's happening down here, God's still on the throne. He's at peace, the great white throne is there and the glassy sea in front of it and the emerald rainbow around it tell you everything's all right in heaven. God is not struggling with Satan, we are, but he's not. Satan even has to ask his permission before he can do anything down here. So things are all right in heaven, God is on the throne, chapter 4, and Jesus is in charge, chapter 5. He breaks the seals on the scroll. So all of history is in God's hands and the end of history is in Jesus' hands. So the difference between things that are not all right on earth and things all right in heaven open up the book. Then we get to this very difficult section which we'll spend quite a bit of time on, bad news and I've labelled it things will get much worse before they get better. That's the bad news. And they will get worse for the world and for the church. The world is going to suffer war, bloodshed, famine and disease, natural disasters and many, many deaths up to a quarter of the human race. The church is going to go through big trouble, three and a half years, an unholy trinity of Satan, Antichrist and the false prophet will be ruling the world at the end and under that unholy trinity the church will really suffer. It will also suffer from the city of Babylon which is portrayed as a filthy prostitute, a scarlet woman riding the dragon and again there will be many deaths, many martyrs. Indeed the Greek word martyr 
which originally meant witness, in the book of Revelation becomes martyr. And uh, the way to witness for Christ is to die for him. I might call the book of Revelation a manual for martyrdom. Things will get much worse before they get better, but only briefly. And then things will get much better after they get worse, chapters 19 to 22. Finish with the good news. What changes the situation is the return of Christ to earth and what's called the first resurrection, which we'll explain later. The reign of Christ on earth for a thousand years. Then the day of judgment when the rest of the human race are raised from the dead for judgment. The second death, the lake of fire, a new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. Now I hope that gives you a feel. It's a kind of four-level sandwich. Good news, sorry, bad news, good news, bad news, good news. The bad news about the church in the present, its state is not ready for suffering. If a church is compromised already, it won't stand when the pressure's on. Holiness is the essential prerequisite for suffering. Otherwise you'll be caught out. But things are all right in heaven. Get a, a vision of God on the throne and Jesus with a scroll, sealed scroll in his hand, and you realize things are under control. God hasn't lost control at all of the situation, but things are going to be allowed by God to get much worse before they get better, both for the world and for the church. But after that big trouble, things will get much better after they get worse. And we need to look beyond the immediate future to the ultimate future to have our hope as an anchor to ourselves. Well, now I want in the last few minutes I've got to say that behind all this there is a philosophy of history. Now many people are frightened by the word philosophy but it means simply the way you think about things. And there are many philosophies of history in the world today that are clamouring for your attention on the TV, in the press, through all the media, different philosophies of history are banging at the door of your mind. The most common one is what we call the cyclic philosophy of history. History repeats itself, it just goes on. Then there is the continuous view of history that it just goes on up and down, it never goes backwards, it's moving forwards but we have our ups and downs, boom and bust, inflation and deflation and so on. There is the progressive view of history, as one English Prime Minister in 1900 said, up and up and up and on and on and on. Progress was the great key word at the beginning of this century. That's better than back to basics. But anyway, um, the regressive view of history is much more common now, which is that everything's going down the drain, the doom and gloom, it's getting worse and worse and worse. In fact, the key word as we go into the next century is not progress but survival. But the apocalyptic view of history is the Bible view, that in the immediate future things will get worse, but in the ultimate future they will get suddenly better and will stay better. Now that view of history like that is unique to three groups of people, Jews, Christians and Communists, and they all believe the same thing. The only difference between them is what's going to change that. The communists say, well, man will change by revolution. 
the struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie will come to a head, there'll be a revolution and we'll have the classless, crimeless society after that. But communists are now getting disillusioned. The Jews say God must change this. The Christians say it will change when Jesus comes back to planet Earth. Things will get worse until Jesus gets back and he will make them better and keep them better after that. So here we have a philosophy of history based on the book of Revelation. Jews, Christians and communists all got it from the same place, from the Hebrew prophets. But that is the Christian view of history. The immediate future, worse. Suddenly, the ultimate future, much better. And the change will come when Jesus gets back. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.